All right, well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I have the privilege in Tom's absence of uh, bringing us home this, uh, this late afternoon. I, you've already heard from Professor Barnett, but I have the privilege of just introducing him again for, for those of you who uh, might have forgotten, uh, the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, attended Northwestern and Harvard Law, uh, prosecutor in Cook County, and a uh, Guggenheim Fellow in Constitutional Studies. Uh, he argued before the Supreme Court the case Gonzalez v. Raich in 2004. Uh, and, and I uh, have followed his work for many years, and, and perhaps my own best known for his work, the Restoring the Lost Constitution, which is for sale outside. But we also have the, the Structure of Liberty, which is now its second edition. So uh, with my, uh, my pleasure to introduce Professor Randy Barnett. So much, and uh, thanks to all of you for sticking around uh, through the whole thing. And it's almost over. Uh, some of, for some of you, you're going to be very sad, and some of you are going to be kind of relieved. Um, <laughs> so my talk is going to be really completely different than my two previous talks. It's going to be about libertarianism. It's not going to be about the Constitution per se, or natural rights in particular. But then you're going to see that at the end, it actually does come around to defending or, or providing a reason uh, in favor of individual sovereignty of the kind I already said um, underlies what I call the Republican Constitution. But it's going to take for me a while to get there. In the meantime, um, the basic, the, the overall to topic of this talk is called the modesty of radical libertarianism. The modesty of radical libertarianism. Uh, I consider myself to be a radical libertarian. Uh, that I think that's what I am, uh, and uh, so, but I actually think it's a modest position. Libertarians are often portrayed as radicals, and in a sense, this is true. There are three senses of radical. Uh, the three senses of radical could be said to describe libertarianism. So the first, uh, here's how radical is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, first meaning, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching or thorough. Second meaning, characterized by departure from tradition, innovative or progressive. Third meaning, relating to the root of something. Those are three definitions of radical. Libertarians do make claims about the fundamental nature of things and strive to be thorough in their application of their principles. Libertarian policies often are a departure from tradition. Libertarians do strive to go to the root of how society should be structured and they claim that route to be liberty. However, if by radical one doesn't mean that, but one means extreme, which is oftentimes how we're characterized, then libertarianism, I will submit today, is the opposite of radical. In this talk, I'm going to explain why libertarianism today is actually a far more modest political approach than that of either the social justice crowd on the left or the legal moralists on the right. Indeed, the more radical a libertarian you are, the more modest a position you advocate as compared with these other two extremes. So let me begin by defining what I mean by social justice, on the one hand, and legal moralism. The social justice crowd holds some version of the view that everyone is entitled to some quantum of stuff. And if they don't have whatever it is, that a particular social justice theorist thinks they ought to have, we need a coercive government with the power to take from those who have this stuff and give it to those who don't. 
Now, this sometimes also entails that no one should have any or too much more stuff than anyone else. But whether the standard be absolute, how much stuff you have, or comparative, whether you have more than someone else, uh, social justice consists of everyone having whatever they are supposed to have according to the advocate of social justice. So that's trying to be fair to this position. I think this generally captures it. Now, there are at least three fundamental problems associated with this position. The first is that there is no single and salient answer to what everybody is supposed to have. Almost everyone who advocates for social justice has either a different view of this or, more commonly in my experience, no firm view at all that they are willing to articulate. For example, try asking someone who says that the rich are not paying their fair share of taxes, okay, what is the fair share? And you will either get a blank look or a single word answer. And that single word answer is? More. More. <laughs> we didn't even have to prearrange this. Oh. <laughs> you've all been there. You've all, you've all been in this situation. More, that's right, more. Whatever the well-off are paying, they should be paying more. Whatever the less well-off have, they should have more. Right. How much more? Not saying. Just more. 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 Okay. Right. So I don't even think we're being unfair. This is just, you know, but it's, you know, it's sort of unfair to make fun of them because they never get made fun of, but I think it's kind of good to make fun of them. <laughs> This lack of specificity makes crafting actual policies extremely unstable. There is no core position around which any political consensus may be formed. There is no identifiable limit beyond which the policy of redistribution can be deemed unjust. In the absence of a consensus, whatever policy may actually be implemented will be politically unstable. Only the subgroup who happens to favor the prevailing plan will be satisfied that social justice is being done. No matter how much redistribution of income or wealth is adopted, there will always be cries for more or different forms, which will greatly undermine the security of everyone's possessions and the ability to plan. Then there are the many um, who will persist in objecting, the, the renegades who will persist in objecting to using force to achieve social justice. And they're going to be dissenting as well, not just the people who disagree about how much there should be, but then there's the few of us who think that maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all. And none of this is a recipe for a peaceful and contented society. It's a recipe for conflict. All right, a second problem is that achieving any particular pattern of distribution will require a highly intrusive government administrative mechanism. Some subset of society will need to be given special powers to collect the information on everyone's wealth or income, depending on if you're redistributing wealth or you're redistributing income. That goes back to point number one. We don't know which it's going to be, but whichever it is, you've got to have somebody who figures out what everybody's wealth is or what everybody's income is or both. This is not some accidental occurrence that can somehow be avoided. It is absolutely necessary to know from whom to take the wealth and to whom to give it according to the approved pattern of social justice, whatever it may be. Collecting this information will necessarily be privacy invasive, and the existence of a database with such information can lead to in the intimidation of dissidents. Finally, a third problem was identified most prominently by the philosopher Robert Nozick, and that is whatever level of redistribution is adopted will require the continual use of force to achieve and maintain it over time. 
the natural outcome of liberty will inevitably destroy whatever pattern of holdings is adopted on one-time basis as the socially just one. In addition to collecting the relevant information to discover how actual holdings differ from this pattern, some subset of persons will need to be empowered to use force to continually adjust holdings so they conform to whatever the approved pattern of social justice is. These three fundamental problems lead to the following mega problem with social justice policies. Any institution powerful enough to gather this information and enforce the pattern will be highly intrusive and enormously dangerous. Not only will it have the exceptional power to violate the background rights that libertarians advocate as the prerequisite for happiness, uh, in, for, for, for pursuing happiness in a social context, it will also have the power to deviate from the pattern favored by particular social justice advocates as well. These institutions of coercion may adopt a different vision of social justice or perhaps other ends entirely unrelated to social justice that will violate the conception of social justice favored by any given proponent of social justice. And given that there is no uniquely salient pattern of distribution, the highly contested nature of social justice makes the potential for abuse even greater. That one cannot prove one's conception is the right one makes perpetual, the perpetual struggle to control the institutions of coercion inevitable. Unless dissenters are somehow suppressed or eliminated, which historically is what happens to dissidents in societies that are committed to social justice. It's not enough, therefore, for social justice advocates to identify a, salient pat a uniquely salient pattern of holdings that is the socially just one, though that's essential. They must also identify the structural features of a legal system that can assure that the pattern they think is just and only that pattern will be adopted and that the powers required to monitor and perpetuate the just pattern will not be captured and abused to the detriment of their conception of social justice. Okay, now let's turn our attention from social justice to legal moralism. Legal moralists focus their attention not on how much stuff each person has, but on how each person ought to act when living his or her life. How each person ought to act when living his or her life. Each person should behave just the way legal moralists believe he or she should behave or be sanctioned by law. Legal moralists have a comparable set of problems. Indeed, we can simply port over much of the above analysis of social justice to the problem of legal moralism. Like social justice proponents, legal moralists disagree amongst themselves about the correct set of moral behaviors. Of course, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft which violate the rights of others should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. For this reason, to preserve the distinction between libertarianism, because we accept all that, from legal moralism, it is important to distinguish between justice, which consists of prohibiting wrongful conduct that violates the rights of others, that's murder, theft, robbery, and the like, from, uh, from morality or ethics, distinguish justice, from morality or ethics, which evaluates the full gamut of human action to distinguish good conduct from bad conduct. So I like to make the distinction between right and wrong. This is, by the way, somewhat arbitrary. This is just a semantic distinction. You could use these words in different ways than I do, but I think for clarity, I like to distinguish between right and wrong, which is just or unjust, which has to do with violating the rights of others. 
That's what libertarians share in common with others, and good and bad behavior. Good and bad behavior, which is morally good, ethically bad, whatever you want to call that behavior over and above what's just or unjust. It's useful to keep these two realms separate. All libertarians, and really pretty much everyone else, believes that force is justified to prohibit unjust or wrongful behavior, but legal moralists would extend the use of force to reach some or all immoral or unethical behavior as well. But while the consensus that murder, rape, robbery, and theft are wrongful and maybe legally prohibited is very widespread, indeed universal, there is no comparable consensus about how all people ought to act or which moral code should be imposed on a society. But even assuming some uniquely salient moral code were identified, like social justice advocates, legal moralists require a powerful and intrusive set of legal institutions to gather information on how everyone is behaving in public and in private to detect whether they are behaving morally or not. Any institution that is powerful enough to accomplish this would be susceptible to enormous abuse. And this potential for abuse is even greater than it would be if a uniquely salient moral code were capable of being identified so those who hold power can at least be confined to those identifiable limits. If there are no identifiable limits, you don't even have that to hold people who have power uh, up to, uh, uh, to that standard. Okay, so now I've identified what social justice is, what legal moralism is, and the, reason, and the fundamental inherent problems with both of these positions. When confronted by these inherent and fundamental problems with their positions, both social justice advocates and legal moralists tend to offer the same response, democracy. We just let people vote on either the correct pattern of distribution, the correct moral code, or both. Seems simple. That's one reason why it has a lot of appeal. It is simple. But this simply avoids the issue. Though majority rule may arrive at some outcome, given the contested nature of both concepts, it is not likely to be a stable outcome, as winners must continually fend off the losers. This, this assumes, of course, that democracy is maintained after the initial vote, which is not typically the case in countries preferring I, pursuing either social justice or legal moralist agendas. They have one vote, and that's it. That's democracy. It's, you voted in, you never vote them out again. But more fundamentally, more fundamentally, how exactly is majority rule supposed to arrive at the correct answer to either social justice or morality by the standard of view prefer of social justice and morality by their own standard how is democracy supposed to arrive at the right result what sort of arguments about the right outcome can a political advocate even make would a, what would a legislative debate about the right distribution or correct morality look like beyond a mere assertion of one's conclusion in the form of one's vote in short what exactly makes the majority vote on any given day the right vote the right outcome unless we get back into a discussion of what truly is social justice and what true or what truly is the right morality to impose in which case we haven't avoided the basic problem and there is no answer to those questions so the just saying people vote it creates a black box mechanism you can you can press the lever yes or no on your little vote indicator but there's no assurance that that means anything about what the right outcome is it's just a way of concealing the problem 
If there is no assurance that a majority or a group of individuals who are denominated legislators or representatives or a majority of the body of, of, the, of the public voting in a referendum will vote for the right outcome, then how exactly is democracy the solution to the problem of the radical indeterminacy of social justice and legal moralist perspectives? Far from being a solution to the problem of arriving at the right conception of social justice or legal morality, the appeal to democracy either disguises or merely restates the problem. It just doesn't solve it. In the end, both social justice and legal moralism assume a God's eye view of either how all physical resources in a society should be allocated or how all persons should behave in their personal and public lives. Indeed, one could easily conclude that social justice proponents and legal moralists are simply substituting a secular government for God to create their own heaven on earth. But this project is simply beyond the capacity of the actual human beings we must rely upon to devise and implement such a scheme. Hypothesizing about the demos does not even seriously address, much less solve, this problem. Moreover, because both social justice and legal moralist visions are comprehensive approaches to all social arrangements, any preferred position necessarily implies the rejection of all competing positions. Remember, they're advocating how all possessions should be allocated or how everybody ought to act. And that means adopting one view is rejecting all other views about these sorts of things. Not only do the comprehensive natures of both approaches make them inherently unstable, as those who favor alternative conceptions continue to agitate for their view of justice or morality. But this very instability has historically engendered a highly coercive and often brutal measures to suppress dissent from the prevailing position. Whether enforced brutally or not, however, every loser of this perpetual struggle must be forced to live their life in a regime he or she deems to be unjust or immoral. The inevitable result of this dynamic is a Hobbesian war of all against all. Now, the recognition of these problems is as old as liberalism itself. Indeed, the origin of classical liberalism and libertarianism can be traced to the devastating consequences of religious wars during which comprehensive religious views fought violently against each other. And why shouldn't contending religions take up arms against their rivals? If eternal salvation is at stake, and salvation requires living in a society in which others all believe accordingly, why should not religion be fought over to the death? And nor has this stance been entirely eradicated from modernity. We see it today in the radical Islamist jihad that is gaining steam in large portions of the world, both in its deadliest form and in its drive to adopt Sharia law in democratic societies that is then coercively imposed on believers and non-believers alike. The classical liberal solution to the problem of religious wars was religious toleration, the view that matters of conscience were matters of individual choice. Notwithstanding that one's eternal soul might be at stake, these proto-liberals contended that it was better for individuals to be free to choose their religions than to adopt a comprehensive one-religion-for-all policy that tended to perpetuate uh, to, that led to perpetual and deadly domestic and foreign strife. Those following toleration, those favoring toleration, sorry, need not and did not deny that one religion was right and the rest were wrong. In other words, they were not religious relativists. 
Instead, they just needed to recognize that, the, that identifying the one true religion was sufficiently contestable as to make the imposition of one religion on all highly unstable and a destructive approach to social ordering. Even from the point of view of religious truth, while the best outcome might be to have one's own true religion imposed on others, the worst outcome was to have another's false religion imposed on you. Everyone's second best outcome was to be free to exercise his or her own religion, which makes this policy the most stable and conducive to social peace. For this reason, rather than have one religion imposed coercively by a monarch, the liberal solution to religious strife was for each individual to be considered the king or sovereign of his own conscience. You were the king, the king didn't, I mean, prior to that, the king got to choose the religion for the realm. After that, each one of us were the kings of our own conscience, the sovereign of our own conscience. Each individual was to live side by side with other individual sovereigns of their own conscience, the way monarchs of countries under the Treaty of Westphalia were supposed to live in peace with their neighbors and refrain from forcibly interfering with the internal affairs of other sovereign monarchs. For Westphalian monarchical sovereignty to work, however, the geographical borders within which each monarch was free to decide on his own internal domestic policies without outside interference must be identifiable and established. You have to have borders that are identifiable. By the same token, the individual sovereignty entailed by religious toleration requires the identification and establishment of boundaries within which individuals have the jurisdiction to choose how to worship. Same thing. Just like they, the, those kings have their boundaries, we as kings of our conscience have, our own, have to have our own boundaries within which we can choose. In sum, the liberal solution to the Hobbesian war of all against all created by comprehensive religious claims was not to posit a sovereign monarch or leviathan, to settle on the true religion for all. Indeed, that was the source of religious wars. But instead, to shift the concept of sovereignty over religious beliefs and exercise from the monarch to the individual person, each with his or her own conscience. Building on this insight, the Lockean jurisdictional solution to the social strife created by the comprehensive religious claims, by comprehensive religious claims, came gradually to be adopted to handle lesser conflicts over mere moral disagreements. Remember, the first conflict that's being handled is the most ultimate disagreement, religious disagreements. Do you go to heaven? Do you go to hell? That was the biggest issue. So toleration and decentralization down to individual sovereignty was the method of handling the big, hardest question and then gradually started to permeate and handle lesser, mere moral disagreements, not the big religious ones. Just, just as the jurisdictions of sovereign monarchs is limited to their respective geographical territories, the jurisdiction of sovereign individuals is limited to their bodies and their justly acquired physical possessions. As in international relations, force is justified to keep everybody within their boundaries, but so long as that they are not operating 
um, so long as that they are operating within their respective jurisdictions and not invading the rightful jurisdictions of, of, of others, individuals should be free to make their own moral choices. The more decisions that are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, the more libertarian this approach becomes. Let me just repeat that. The more decisions that are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, the more libertarian this classical liberal approach becomes. Indeed, modern libertarianism can be viewed as the push to see just how many types of decisions can feasibly be delegated to the realm of individual sovereignty, like pushing an envelope. The debate between libertarians and others and among libertarians themselves is precisely how far this process of delegation can be taken. It is inaccurate to characterize this argument for delegation as premised on some atomistic individualism that assumes that each man is an island independently of others in society, any more than did the Westphalian monarchical sovereignty assume atomistic nation states. To the contrary, what is sought are the prerequisites of peaceful social coexistence in a world in which each person's actions are very much likely to affect others. As with contending nation states, social conflicts and interdependence is the issue to be solved rather than denied by the recognition of individual sovereignty. Now, it should now be clear, I hope, that modern libertarianism merely takes individual sovereignty seriously. That's all it does, and tries to push this concept as far as it can feasibly go. For libertarians, as for Locke, Private property is the concept that defines the proper jurisdiction of each sovereign person who is sui juris or competent to manage his or her own affairs. We're not talking about exceptional cases of people who have mental incapacities of various kinds or very, very young children or very, very elderly people. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people in the middle, the norm, who are sui generis. The freedom and freedom of contract. So private property governs our boundaries. Freedom of contract governs the transfers of these property rights from one person to another. Liberty for a libertarian, then, is not the Hobbesian freedom to do whatever one wills. Instead, it is the Lockean freedom to do whatever one wills with what's yours. There is simply no libertarianism without jurisdictional limits on freedom of action. Think about that for a minute. There is no libertarianism without jurisdictional limits on freedom of action. Libertarianism attempts to define what the limits of freedom of action are. It's not unlimited freedom. Liberty is to be distinguished from license. License is unlimited at freedom of action. It's the Hobbesian liberty of doing anything you will with anything, including other people. That's not libertarianism. Libertarian doesn't exist without limits, limits on jurisdiction. Libertarianism is distinctive in its attempt to limit coercion to the protection of these jurisdictional boundaries to the greatest extent that is feasible. Forcible interference by some with the liberty that is the, within the sovereign jurisdiction of others is as offensive to libertarianism as the unprovoked forcible interference of one national sovereign within the boundaries of another is offensive to the prevailing view of international relations. You can just replicate libertarianism by picturing how international relations is supposed to take place. Everybody within their boundaries, nobody crosses boundaries. If they cross boundaries, they're aggressing and they can be resisted. Now, however radical this may sound in the abstract, 
It is actually a far more modest approach than either social justice or legal moralism. Although the line between mine and thine must be drawn, doing so is far more practical than specifying the morality of the entirety of human action, which is what legal moralism requires. Although rules and principles governing the just acquisition, use, and transfer of property must be identified, this is far more manageable and less divisive and dangerous a task than continually readjusting the distribution of holdings, suppressing the acquisition of property altogether, or identifying a stable principle of fair share. Much easier. Not, not totally automatically easy, but much easier. Moreover, because proponents of social justice and legal moralism typically propose superimposing their schemes on top of existing structures of private property and freedom of contract, they rarely advocate doing away with property and contract. They may believe it, but they rarely advocate it, rather than so, so they don't supplant them. These stances are necessarily more ambitious than simply limiting legal coercion to the libertarian core that must still be somehow determined. Put another way, no matter how challenging the task of properly defining the proper jurisdictions of individual sovereigns may be, adding to it considerations of social justice or legal moralism makes it even more challenging. In this sense, libertarianism is necessarily more modest than either social justice or legal moralism when those two are added to the core rights that libertarianism requires. Now, the question may arise. Do liberal social democracies provide a better middle way? What about the social democracies of Western Europe or the now expanding social welfare state in the United States? Don't these political systems combine the individual sovereignty of private property with the redistribution of social justice as well as some degree of legal moralism? Don't these represent the true middle ground or what was once sometimes called the third way? between an unconstrained system of either social justice or legal moralism on the one hand and the unconstrained liberty of libertarianism on the other. If these types of arrangements are feasible, does this not undermine the libertarian objection to social justice, legal moralism, or both? In some ways, I think the answers to these questions is yes. Superimposing a degree of wealth or income redistribution on, or morals legislation on a robust base of private property is infinitely preferable to the radical single-minded pursuit of either social justice or legal moralism. But this response to the case for libertarianism is actually a major concession to libertarianism rather than a genuine objection. For it concedes that libertarian principles of property provide a necessary baseline upon which some less than complete scheme of redistribution or moral regulation can then be superimposed. Moreover, Advocates of social democracy assume the feasibility of this alternative to confining legal coercion to just to the protection of individual sovereignty. But what if the approach really is infeasible, the approach of superimposing it on classical liberal rights? What if superimposing social justice or legal moralism on the individual sovereignty defined by private property and freedom of contract is ultimately unstable? Well, why might that be? Perhaps institutions with sufficient power to effectuate social justice or impose morality will inevitably be captured by the more powerful forces in society and put to other ends, put to other ends. Perhaps they will inevitably be, inevitably be used for a purpose that does not conform to the proper conception of social justice and morality. 
After all, as I've already noted, what realistic assurances have we ever been given that such power can be limited to whatever theory is being advanced to justify its creation? Never. They never give us any procedural assurances that their claims of power will be limited the way they want them to, the way they say they want them to be. What happens in a social democracy when 51% of the voters discover it can vote to redistribute the wealth or impose their moral vision upon the other 49%? Or more likely, what um, or more likely, uh, when political entrepreneurs uh, inspire, say, 80% of the electorate to discover how they can confiscate the income of wealth of 20%, then what happens? When this happens, how will social democracy preserve the individual sovereignty that the third way approach concedes is necessary as the baseline? What realistic mechanisms are proposed by advocates of the third way to ensure against this outcome? Now, I've been teaching law and writing about liberty for over 30 years now, and I have yet to hear any such proposal from any of my colleagues, and I guess none of you have either. It would be genuinely enlightening to hear proponents of liberal social democracy tell us how it will not eventually devour the individual rights that provide the foundation for their additional schemes of redistribution or morals regulation. But is that not a reasonable request? In contrast, libertarians do offer a solution or two to the problem of limiting government power to the protection of individual sovereignty. Like their classical liberal ancestors, most modern libertarians favor constitutionally limited government in which power is structurally divided among different branches of the federal or national government and between the limited powers of the national government and the broader police powers of states and municipalities. In short, these libertarians favor something very much like, if not identical to, the original meaning of the Constitution of the United States, the whole Constitution, including those parts that protect the unenumerated rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Other libertarians, this came up the other day, have observed the continuing decline of respect for the Constitution's limits on state and federal power and favor a more radical alternative. They would see law enforcement and adjudication handled competitively rather than, or, rather than by monopolistic government agencies. This is the polycentric legal order idea that came up the other day. They favor consumer choice and competition as the best check on the abuse of the powers of law enforcement. In contrast with advocates of social justice or legal moralism then, libertarians and their classical liberal forefathers have paid considerable attention to how government power can be limited to the protection of the rights defined, defining individual sovereignty that libertarians favor. However persuasive their responses to this problem may be, they cannot be accused of ignoring or treating it with less than the seriousness this problem deserves. In the end, there emerges a fundamental contrast between social justice and legal moralism on the one hand and libertarianism on the other. Advocates of social justice and legal moralism are concerned with ends to the exclusion of all serious consideration of means. All persons should have X amount of stuff. All persons should act or refrain from acting in certain ways. In addition to the failure to reach anything close to consensus, even among themselves, on what these ends should be, what is principally lacking is any serious attention to A, 
to the means by which one's favored end will be achieved, and B, to how the coercive institutions, these coercive institutions will be limited to just the correct ends without being perverted to pursue other ends that are deemed by any particular social justice or legal moralist uh, to be unjust and immoral. In contrast, libertarianism is concerned almost exclusively with means rather than with ends. Even the fundamental rights of private property and freedom of contract that principally define liberty are conceived by libertarians as means to the pursuit of happiness while living in society with others rather than as ends in itself. Libertarians don't like property as an end in itself. We don't like freedom of contract as an end in itself. We like them as a means to pursue happiness. And we believe they're necessary as a means to pursue happiness. Now, to be sure, the protection of these rights can be treated as the end of government, but only because government itself is perceived by libertarians as a regrettable, necessarily, by some libertarians, as a regrettably necessary means of protecting property and contracts. So government itself is viewed as a means, not an end. Now, of course, libertarians are, are seriously concerned with one end, the end of living a good life or what the Declaration referred to as the pursuit of happiness, to bring this full circle back to my first lecture. It is this end that motivates their commitment to such means as private rights, freedom of contract, and constitutionally limited government. But as I've already described, most libertarians believe that liberty is necessary precisely because the end of happiness will vary with the uniquely varying circumstances, goals, and aspirations of particular individuals, and because living the good life is in the end a do-it-yourself affair. Nobody can do it for you. Real-world experience, they maintain, has demonstrated that governments, governmental implementation of either social justice or legal moralism has led to dystopias almost beyond our ability to imagine. In contrast, even, in, even an imperfect commitment to private individual rights and limited constitutional government has led to the greatest prosperity and empowerment of individuals in human history. Of course, none of this is easy to prove. If it were, libertarianism would either have vanquished its intellectual foes or have been defeated by them. But consider what may be the ultimate empirical proof of the superiority of even imperfectly adhering to libertarian principles as we do, very, very imperfectly. Which way do the refugees run? Which countries need to restrict the exit of their citizens? Were people to clamoring to get into or out of the USSR? Are they lining up to enter the malocracy of Iran or to get out of it? To the extent they can, and by the way, it's interesting to see why people are going over to fight with ISIS. There are people who are trying to get over to fight with ISIS because what they're being promised is the ability to rape and pillage, and that's something that they can't do here. And so they want to get over there where they can do it because that's fun. That's the ultimate video game. That is really what they're out to do in real life. And so that's appealing to them. So that's one of the very few counterexamples of where the refugees or the people are going in the other direction, but for all the wrong reasons. It's sort of a counterexample that proves the rule. To the extent they can, people vote with their feet for the increased prosperity made possible by the more robust protection of property and, as compared with other governmental systems. Persons who are capable of relocating tend to leave societies preoccupied by the pursuit of social justice or legal morality and beat a path to the door of societies who pursue some semblance 
of the libertarian way. As empirical proofs go, this one is probably as good as any. Now, of course, given that there is no truly libertarian society, this is a comparative matter. Which societies protect the rights of property and contract better than others? But in the end, this too is why libertarian is modest. Libertarianism is modest. Libertarians posit their models of complete liberty. I, I sort of said this in response to a question the other day. Libertarians posit their models of complete liberty as a means of incrementally inching existing societies in a more libertarian direction, inch by inch. Libertarians believe that good things will happen as this progress is made. And if we ever reach the point where the protection of property rights is having a counterproductive effect, we can stop there. In the meantime, we have a long way to go before we reach that point, or so say libertarians, with all due modesty. Thanks. So I think I have until 4.30. Well, we don't have to take all that time, but you can, if we can... So I don't want to create a negative incentive here. You can, we, if we run out of questions and things to say, we can take an earlier break. But let's, um, let's go first over here. I'm Jerry. I'm a retired doctor. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with this argument, but it brings a question to my mind. Uh, a moral imperative, such as we had in the Civil War, to stop slavery was a major reason for the Civil War. Absolutely. All right. If that moral imperative drove us to that position, I have difficulty feeling comfort in an, a seven, an eight, or an eight and a half month fetus being uh, having a partial birth abortion, because then it is this. An old Jesuit said, the vagina is a wonderful organ. On one side of it, you're human, and on one side of it, you're not. And what's your question? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my question. I mean, I believe in all that we're talking about, but now we're talking about the privacy of two lives. Absolutely. That's, that's the issue. That's the question. That's what makes abortion um, somewhat of a singular issue. Uh, slavery was not a difficult moral question. No. Abortion is a somewhat more difficult moral question, but it's the same kind but of question. is it that difficulty at eight and a half months? Why not just deliver the baby and, and I, get look, it to I, I'm going to set up the, what I think is the question or what I think the issue is here, and I'm not going to resolve it one way or the other, but I'm going to explain why I think it's difficult okay. uh, in a way that slavery was not. In, in slavery at the time, I just want to talk a little bit about slavery, and I'm happy to talk a lot more about it because I've done a lot of work on it. But... Um, uh, at the time of the founding, at the time our country was founded, it was universal, just about universally conceded that slavery was unjust. Not that they necessarily knew what to do about it, but that it was unjust. The pro-slavery ideology only developed later after the invention of the cotton gin and the steam engine, which created a tremendous market for the production of slave labor, which previously did not exist. And once it became greatly economically beneficial to have slaves, a pro-slavery ideology was then developed after the fact. But before that, it was not really a very tough moral choice. What makes abortion different um, is not the question of whether an un the unborn um, uh, child is, a, is, a hum is human or not human. It's human from day one. It, what else could it be? 
the question is when personhood begins, not when humanity begins. The Constitution itself, by the way, the 14th Amendment itself protects persons uh, born or naturalized as citizens in the United States. They define citizens as those who are born or naturalized. It even recognizes birth as a salient time. Now, that doesn't mean that given technology, birth has to be the salient moment. When, when somebody could survive outside the womb independently, that might be the time in which they become a person. But that is the question. At what point do you become a person? And the reason why I'm not going to answer that question, and I don't think we need to here, is that which, however way you answer that question, everything else follows. If you're a person from conception, then libertarianism follows that you should be protected at all stages of your personhood, period. Libertarianism follows from that. If you're a person upon birth, then you should be protected at that point. Libertarianism follows. If you're a person upon viability, or what they used to call quickening, then at that point, rights attach, and libertarianism follows. So the threshold question that has to be decided is when does personhood begin? And that's about, it's, it's about that question that people disagree and that libertarians I, disagree with each other. I don't think the neonatologists disagree on that. It's about 26 <clears throat> weeks. I'm afraid, you know, just, you know, the neonatologist is not necessarily a theorist of personhood. <laughs> they would actually be able to know a lot about human growth and embryonic growth and what's going on inside. But in terms of what counts as a person and when you count, is a two-celled individual a person or not a person? Is a four-celled individual a person or not a person? That's something about which reasonable people can differ. Thank you. And the co important point that keeps us all together is that once you've made that threshold choice or once you've argued for that threshold conclusion, then everything else about libertarianism follows from that decision. Will that decision ever be looked at? I, I'm not sure I know what that question is, but I need to move on to another question. Yes. So you touched on this a little bit, talking about democracy and how it doesn't, it's a black box, it doesn't solve a lot of their social justice theorist problems. But a lot of them, you know, how do you respond to the argument a lot of them make, which is, you know, you libertarians are the ones who are being, you know, immodest and, uh, and dogmatic because you have a certain fixed idea of natural rights as some kind of timeless principles. And we don't, we don't think we know, you know, the progressives say, we don't think we know what the social, socially just ideal distribution would be. We want, it, we want everyone to have a voice, and they'll sort of work this out in some kind of Hegelian progressive process where society will move along, and you're standing in the way of that, uh, of that process. Um, well, sometimes they say stuff like that, and other times they don't. Um, they, you know, there is no, you know, we're not arguing against one position. We're arguing against a panoply of positions, and uh, by and large, they have to make the only way they can justify using coercion to take something, somebody's stuff, and give it to somebody else is they think that there's a pattern that is, in far as they're concerned, objectively established enough to justify that. I mean, they don't have, you know. Uh, they're not under any particular advantage in terms of uh, how robust their claims are. They make claims to justify coercion, and we make claims to justify coercion. It's just our claims are different than theirs. So I don't think they have any particular answer. And just and 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 I, my answer to the question of voice is, was my answer to the question of democracy. I mean, I've given you my answer, and that is, democracy doesn't solve the problem. It conceals it. It covers it up. It's like if okay, let the legislature decide. I mean, just to, I don't. I really hate to open the abortion question again, but let the, if, if you have a legislature debating, let's say, well, let the legislature debate, and they'll decide when life begins. What's that debate going to look like? <laughs> That's my question. Are people going to get up and they're going to make learned philosophical arguments about exactly what pers what defines persons, and does this 
And when do we qualify? Is it immediately? Is it later? Is that the way that debate's going to go? It's never the way that debate goes. It's going to be a lot of assertions and just let's vote. And voting doesn't answer the question. So we are not given any assurance by them that we're actually even reaching social justice by their own lights. Thank you. Yes. So moving back to your discussion of Hobbes and Locke. So uh, Jerry Gauss has a paper um, basically on this question. It's called like a Hobbes's challenge to public reason liberalism, where he agrees with you that this is the, you know, sort of the, the exchange between Hobbes and Locke is Hobbes is concerned about, you know, the war of all against all, and Locke solves this problem by pushing our comprehensive views of the good into, you know, the private sphere, and the public sphere will just have rights. Um, but in this paper, Gauss suggests that, in fact, that's not a solution uh, because our, our private uh, comprehensive conceptions of the good will bleed back into our views about rights. And so over time, we end up with these very, very disparate conceptions of rights. So this isn't a long-term solution. Well, I think we've seen some evidence that that's what happens. I mean, we live in a society in which things are bleeding into other things, and, and it's very difficult to resist that. But you know, I mean, I, we do have an answer in the ideal or, or in the abstract to this question, and we have to argue against deviations from that, whereas my point about the other side is they don't even have an ideal or abstract standard against which to criticize deviations. Let's start with that. Tell us what the right pattern of distribution is. How much is everybody supposed to have? Let's just start. Now, we know what we're starting with. We're starting with private property and freedom of contract. And we know basically how those things are to be defined, even though I can tell you as a contracts professor, it's not always easy to know exactly when a contract has been made and when it has been breached. We do have rules of law developed over centuries to give us answers to those questions. That's discoverable. We have a baseline. Where's their baseline? With no baseline at all, don't, you know, you re the problem of bleeding is a secondary, uh, it's a secondary problem. They've got a primary problem where they can't even tell us where it's supposed to be in the first place. So it's anything goes. It's this version versus that version versus the other version. That was my problem. I mean, so it takes more, it takes, it, 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 there's sometimes, a, there was one theorist that says it takes a theory to beat a theory. That's ne not necessarily always true, but there's a grain of truth to it. <laughs> okay, granted, there is a problem of bleeding. There is a problem of the fact that our Constitution has actually not succeeded in keeping our government within its limits. I consider that to be a very serious problem with the Constitution. It didn't keep government within its limits. But we have something to fight about. We have a standard to defend. Where's theirs? And if they don't have one, they're like in much worse position than I are. And remember, I'm at the end of the day making a comparative argument. Who is the more extreme and radical position, ours or them? I'm not saying our position is unproblematic. I'm just saying our position is more modest. That's different. Our position is problematic. That's why those of us who do this theory stuff are constantly having problems to solve because our problems haven't all been solved. But our problems are much more modest than their problems are. Yes? I'm struggling to form an opinion on social justice for children. Um, I could think the libertarian point of view. Oh, do you mean social justice for children, or do you mean justice for children? Because it's not, what I mean social uh, justice, I'm talking about everybody having the right amount of stuff. I'm thinking social justice, specifically I could say education. Um, a parent brings a child into the world, um, it could be not the government's responsibility for the child, but the parent's responsibility to raise that child. 
what, what if the parent decides not to educate their child? And in, the, in this world, that's I mean, don't important. send them to the government socialist schools and have them be indoctrinated or, uh, or, um, by all these lefty professors or not who educate, won't teach American history. Not you mean educate that them kind at, of no, not child educate abuse? them at all is the risk. Yeah, I know there's all kinds of problems with well, the, there, I, the I government. Mean, you are, you are I, I, okay. Um, I just was being flippant. The, I mean, the, you are talking so about schooling and not the, education. The concern is the the the, so, the cost. I mean, we risk. Um, perpetuating generational problems. Um, if we have children that don't get educated and their children don't get educated and they become sort of a, a drain on society. That would be bad. I would totally agree with you about that. But the two things I would, I would, I would start off making a distinction between education and schooling. Yeah. We, they're not the same thing. There are a lot of ways in which we get educated without going to school, and there's a lot of things we learn in school that are probably, probably pretty bad for us to know or to think we know, and so schooling can actually be detrimental. So first of all, we've got to keep those separate. Education is a bigger end. Schooling is a means to that end. It's one of our many means to the end. And in some societies, schooling might be really good. In other societies, it might not be so good. So I would start off with that distinction. But I would then pull back and more generalize. Um, about the rights of children itself. That is also kind of a hard case, or it's an exceptional case for libertarian theory that libertarians have struggled with. Unlike other political theories, we do struggle with our hard cases. We do argue about them with ourselves, amongst ourselves. We don't just bury them. But in principle, here's the source of the problem. Children have rights, and they have rights whenever they become a person. That's either at birth or it's beforehand. But they have rights when they have a person. And when a person has rights, those rights may not be violated, even if that person is helpless and can't defend themselves. And rights we know can be violated by people's parents. Don't, we don't even have to get to schooling. We could just talk about physical child abuse. And what about parents who do that? So we have a problem. And the, in principle, what I think we do is we take children and let's wait. There's, there were two models that libertarians used to work, used to describe the rights of children versus parents. One was the property model, which is children, in some sense, are the property of their parents. But that leads to the justification. If if it's truly your property, you can pretty much do whatever you want with it, and that leads to justifications of child abuse, which is inconsistent with the fact that children have rights. The other is the contract model which is that in some respects, parents are in a contractual relationship with their children. And the problem is, children are below the age of contractual capacity. So they can't really enter into contracts with anybody. So that model doesn't work. Those were the two libertarian models that libertarian theorists back in the 70s and 80s really played with. But then came forward another model. And there's no reason why this model can't work. And it's called the guardianship ward model. And, that it, and this was a model that was primarily pro, uh, uh, put forward by George Smith, who was a uh, an old friend of mine. How many people here have heard of George Smith? Okay, great libertarian hero. Um, so, uh, and the guardianship ward model is that people can have a guardianship relationship with their ward, uh, and that doesn't necessarily limit it to children. It could also be people who are sick and who can't take care of themselves, the elderly. And it's a voluntary, it's a consensual relationship you have with a ward, but you are a fiduciary responsible for protecting the rights of that person, and beyond a certain level of proof, when it turns out that you violated that person's rights, then you can be dispossessed of, that, of your guardianship rights in favor of somebody else who consensually undertakes the protection uh, of that individual ward. And that's the model that I think is the most appropriate model. That doesn't mean there aren't a lot of hard cases about what constitutes child abuse, what constitutes the violation of rights. But I don't think the failure to send kids to government schools is child abuse. I don't. Yes. Hi. Um, when I first uh, read the name of your talk, The Modesty of Libertarianism, um, 
as an econ student, I, I originally thought, oh, he's going to talk about, you know, Leonard Reed and Israel Kirzner and how they're modest in admitting how little knowledge they have. And then when I heard your talk, it was very different and I enjoyed it very much. But I'm wondering, seeing these two phenomenon in libertarian economists and more libertarian political philosophers, there's this tendency towards um, modesty. Do you think one preceded the other? Do you think um, they're completely separate phenomena? Or do you think there's some kind of underlying um, presumption among libertarians that leads to this kind of exceptional trend towards um, humility and modesty that I, you don't I think, really see I elsewhere. I think they are closely related to each other. I know libertarian. The problem, the thing that's so funny about this is libertarians don't come off as modest, <laughs> <laughs> and they don't come off as humble. It's one of the problems. It's like the "don't be an asshole" thing uh -huh. that I was talking about the other night. Uh, they come off that way, the opposite of whatever modest or humble is, right? So that's too bad. Uh, they should be more modest, but, um, uh, but you're not talking about that. Otherwise, there is a connection, and the connection is the problem of knowledge, which is actually the first third of my book, The Structure of Liberty, and that is that the problem of knowledge is to how, in a social environment, are we able to put what it is we know into action while taking into account un the unbelievable amount in which, of which we are ignorant. Everyone in this room knows better about your own situation at this point in time than anyone else does. You know if you're hungry, you know if you're thirsty, you know if you have to go to the bathroom, you know if you're bored, you know all these things no one else in the room knows. So you have a privileged position. You know this stuff. And to pursue happiness, you need to put that knowledge into action. But you are completely ignorant of a lot of, of all the similar knowledge everybody else in this room has, and then the millions and billions of people outside this room you're completely oblivious to. So the challenge of knowledge, the problem of knowledge is to put I mean, I said I, I sometimes use the metaphor that uh, the knowledge glass is half empty and half full. There's the half full of what you know and the half empty that you don't know. Only the, the more appropriate metaphor is we each have a molecule of knowledge in a Olympic-sized swimming pool full of, uh, of stuff we don't know, an empty swimming pool. So that is the underlying modesty that, that, that unites the eco economic visions of the Austrians um, and Israel Kirzner and the political theory I'm talking about that comes from classical liberals in which it's enough to figure out, it's hard enough to figure out how each one of us should live. We also, we're just not smart enough and knowledgeable enough to tell everybody else how they should live, which is really what social justice and legal moralism requires. It requires is individual fallible people have the capacity to tell the rest of the world how to live their lives and how to tell, and they just, that's just in, unrealistic. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, I, I just love your, your thinking. It's, um, you know, you, you create a model with which we can make decisions. And I want to throw out something I've only created in three minutes, but I think it's, and I want, want your, uh, yeah, sorry. It's all you get is three minutes. And I would like your reaction, okay? okay. I, I think we're going to win the battle with legal moralists, especially the extreme ones, so I won't concentrate on them. I think to get the ball down the field, the social justice people, we have to negotiate with. It might be like negotiating with Iran, but I think we can do it. Here's my thought. Your comment would be appreciated. If we go to them and say, we, we are very, very interested in limited and selective uh, social justice. Okay, so what can we do? Maybe as an example, education. We're, we're, we're for education. Maybe even extend, you know, where government pays for it, maybe even extending it to college, possibly. But we're going to do it within a budget. Because if we don't do it within a budget and keep the debt down, you're committing social injustice against the next generation. Okay? Maybe. 
Can we call this something like maybe compassionate conservatism? Or <laughs> <laughs> hey, how about okay, how about moderate? Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know you just took three minutes. Uh, yeah, 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 to, yeah, yeah. yeah but, it, but okay, it sounds see, like a bigger idea. Yeah, I, I, I think we can negotiate with them. I think we can find common ground. That was just one example. Maybe we can say basic health care for all. Basic, not okay. What do you think? You're, what do I think? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the suggestion. I understand the impulse. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the better solution is to make fun of social justice warriors. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I think it's fantastic that in the last year or two, there has now developed the acronym SJWs, social justice warriors, that we can all belittle. We can just call them SJWs <laughs> and just make fun of them. And uh, they, de they deserve to be... Um, uh, Lampooned. Well, yeah, especially the extremists, but I, I think they can be reachable. I, seriously. Okay, let me talk about reachable and not reachable. Okay. I mean, I, is it, this is just a very, just pull back from this particular discussion. Just talk about being a libertarian in a world of a lot of non libertarians and how one ought to pursue this, in my view. Yep. I mean, there's lots of, if you want to just butt heads and argue with, not you, but yep. if you, everybody else wants to just butt heads and argue with people, go at it. You know, you might make a pain of yourself, but it's not my life. Um, but the way I view it is that if I'm up against an advocate of the other position, mm -hmm. I am not going to persuade them. I'm not trying to persuade them. Any more than when I was a prosecutor, my job was to convince the defense attorney that his client was guilty. Well, how about finding For common one ground? Thing, he already knew his client was guilty. Yes. <laughs> Better than I did. All right, but for another thing, my goal was not to convince him. My goal was to convince the jury, the people who were there who had to decide between him and me. So I think all of our argumentative orientation ought to be to appeal to people who have an open enough mind to listen to us and not to waste our time trying to appeal to people who don't have an open mind and will listen to us. It's not necessarily a waste of time to argue with them as a way of refining our own arguments, and maybe as a, sometimes I will do it in order to establish to their satisfaction that we really do have a position that's worth respecting. Not because I think I'll convince them that I'm right, but I might convince them that I have a perspective that they need to take seriously, and that might be worth the energy. But you have to always ask yourself, in a world of scarcity, which you, where life is very limited, and the older people in this audience know how much more limited it is than the younger people know, but in a world in which your life is very limited, what do you want to spend your precious, scarce time doing? And I think when it comes to arguing, the idea is find your jury and appeal to the jury. And if you can't find one, then just do something else for the time being. You read a book, but you don't have to go off and argue with everybody all the time. As a, as a final them. rebuttal comment, I would just say, maybe create a subcommittee of libertarians like me. <laughs> Send us out to negotiate with them and bring back a proposal. <laughs> okay. OK. Well, I have a prediction to make, and that is we'll send you off, and we will never see you again. <laughs> <laughs> I've no. seen many, many people no. troop off into that realm, and, to, and, then, they're, and then they're gone. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, so I have a, a relatively simple, straightforward question, which is where do rights come from? Where do rights come from? Um, they're in the dirt. I explained this to you the other <laughs> night. If you look in the dirt, you will find rights. Okay. Rights are a, a solution to a social problem of how we organize society in which we can pursue happiness while living in peace and prosperity, while living in peace with other people. And so rights are a solution to that problem, and they come from in the sense they come from anywhere. They come from uh, our reasoned conclusions and experience um, about the nature of human beings and the world in which human beings exist, the very same place that our principles of architecture come from. 
They come from the very same place that our principles of medicine come from. Where do they come from? Where do they come from, by the way? What where, principles of where, where, does, where does medical knowledge come from? Answer that question. I mean, it's a serious question. I'm not trying to be argumentative. Kind of. Um, so that's where this, wherever they come from, that's where this comes from. Same place. Okay. <laughs> yes. I wanted to see your response to a more limited uh, version of the moral argument that you were making. Rather than making the argument to use uh, law to force people to be constrained to this moral view, what about government that where politicians advocate and try to convince people of what they think the moral view is? Or you know, you see times of governments that will sometimes allow uh, the Ten Commandments or other things in a public park be able to stay there, not to force others. Uh, to obey or to collect taxes to spread the word for that, but just to kind of advocate for what they believe the moral vision is to others? Um, it's a much less dangerous thing than actually coercing anybody to have to do any particular thing, so it's, it's better than that. Um, and in some respects, I think all of us kind of want to see politicians urging people to do the right thing. But I guess under the model of the government, that I think individual sovereignty leads to, they're supposed to be our servants. They're supposed to be our servants. And are there our agents, and you don't have the servants or agents lecturing to the principals about how they're supposed to behave. They're supposed to do their job. Now, we have other servants. We have priests, and we have ministers, and we have other teachers and stuff, and we hire them because of their expertise in those realms as our servants, but then their responsibility is to help enlighten us. We go to psychoanalysts, we go to you know, shrinks, because they're supposed to help us. And we pay them for their expertise in helping us. I don't know that the way we select people to be politicians, um, I think, by the way, that being a politician is a very difficult thing to do. We make fun of them. They deserve to be made fun of. I'm not saying they don't. But I, look, I, you know, I know politicians. I see them, I see them who try to do the job. Uh, it's a very hard job to do. Uh, you, have to be, you have to have a different skill set than other people have in order to, under, to understand a variety, a panoply of problems just well enough to know what to do about them and to deal with people and to sell ideas. It's a very difficult thing to do. But I don't think we hired them because we think they have moral superiority to us. Um, there's nothing in the process that would give us any reason to be confident that they have moral superior over, yeah. us, superior over us. I mean, how they run for office, how they get elected, I mean, the moral superior ones. So given that, I don't look to them for moral guidance because I don't think they're likely to provide it. And when they do provide it, as you know as well as I do, it ends up being very hypocritical. They say what's supposed to be said, and then behind closed doors, they do something different than what they say, and it get, then they get exposed, and then they go away, and then we get a new guy in, and then they do it again. So... <laughs> Therefore, I don't have that much problem with – I like when politicians say stuff I agree with and when it comes to this stuff, but they're not particularly qualified, I think, to, to really be moralists, really. And it's really not their – in our world of individual sovereignty, it really is not their job. Yes? Within the libertarian historical or rights-based account of justice, how should we deal with historic injustices, especially those whose effects we can't really tease out. Yeah. Uh, an anarchy state and utopia, Nozick provides for some level of redistribution to rectify this, but doesn't talk about what form it should take or how much we need. 
It's really, this is a really serious problem. I mean, look, libertarianism, classical liberalism does have its is intellectual problems. It's not a perfect theory that has pat answers to everything, and this is one of them. What happens to, I mean, let's take a hypothetical case. What happens to the systematic enslavement of black people? Um, uh, and then for a couple hundred years and after that, how about their subordination in a, in a system of apartheid or Jim Crow for another hundred years? Let's take a hypothetical like that. Um, maybe, uh, maybe that is a problem that creates effects, right? So I fully admit that could be a problem. And I think that actually it's one of the reasons why I consider the problems of African Americans in this country to be sui generis because we did have a particular practice of African bondage, African slavery in this country. We didn't, I mean, I'm Jewish. Jews were persecuted, they were put to death. I, I understand, I, I understand. I identify, I, I, I think my people are persecuted, they're being persecuted today, and they're at risk of annihilation today, but that doesn't put Jews in this country in the same position that blacks were in this country, because Jews were never enslaved in this country. So as much as I believe that Jewish people have been persecuted throughout time and will continue to be, I don't put them in the same category in this country as I do people who come from slaves. Uh, although I don't put in the same position people who come from other countries who are black, who are not the descendants of slaves in this country, because they are not the, the they, they have not received the liabilities, whatever liabilities may have attached to the previous condition of servitude if they come from somewhere else. So it becomes very complicated. Now, as to what I would do about it, I do kind of favor a more simple rule to handle these things. And I, I but I want, I, I laid this all out to show you that it's simple, a simple rule and it's not perfect. And that is that as long as you can find, my, my own simple rule of thumb is that as long as you can find a living victim of oppression and you can find a living perpetrator of that oppression, then the living perpetrator should be required to make compensation to the living victim. But once you get into succeeding generations, then the problem is that in reality, the way the world is, is that everybody, almost everybody, has some claim to oppression at some point or another in history, and you just can't unscramble the omelet anymore. And as a unfortunate second best of be living in the real world, and libertarianism is about the real world, you have to go on. You have to go on. Um, and in a society that's free, even people who are worse off because they may be the descendants of slaves, are infinitely better off than people who are not the descendants of slaves who live in other cultures who are not free today. So we have at least that as consolation. But, if you, but, but it is a recipe for a war of all against all to engage in the identity politics in which everybody has to join up in their tribe and, and start rooting for the benefits, getting benefits for their tribe, because their tribe has been more oppressed than the next guy's tribe. That's just a form of tribalism that ultimately leads to terrible social conflict and a less happy society for everyone at the top or at the bottom. Yes. Okay, I know you don't want to go back to the abortion question. How my did you know? How could you tell? <laughs> I could tell. But my curiosity so was perceptive. aroused by your answer to the gentleman's question. So you mentioned that it was important to distinguish between a person and a human, and I understand that distinction in animal ethics when trying to determine how animals should be treated and, you know, in philosophy discourses on their rights. But I was wondering if you could say something about the importance of distinguishing between a person and a human in the abortion debate. I don't think I, I really have anything more to say than I've already said. So I just I, I think the most important thing for me to say at this point is to inject that distinction into the discussion so that people can address it, and they don't think that simply by identifying something as human, they've necessarily answered the question of personhood. 
they may have answered the question of personhood, but more work needs to be done to say when personhood begins as opposed to when humanity begins. And beyond making that distinction, I don't care to say any more. Okay, thank you. Yes. Uh, my question is about the interaction between the law and uh, some sort of uh, freestanding conception of moral rights. Uh, Professor Hasness has written about how the common law arose as a mechanism that tried to solve practical problems and that it was uh, evolved to produce not necessarily uh, outcomes that comported with some conception of justice, but that comported with uh, peace and you know civil... Uh, and I heard a lot of the echoes of, of uh, that position in your talk today. Um, when asked about, you know, what is the role then for, you know, uh, natural rights, say, that we don't conceive of as being instrumental, but as having value in themselves, uh, Professor Hasnes, for example, said that, well, that's like, we do legal criticism, right? And the scholars of the law say, uh, you know, here's... Uh, here's what the law is, here's what we think it should be, and, and, and et cetera. I was wondering uh, if you had an opinion on this, this topic and what it was. Um, I think it's possible he got this idea from me. It doesn't, I mean, it's not quite sure. I mean, we, we're, we're <laughs> thinking very similar thoughts. The, um, um, in, I, I think I said this the other night. In my book, The Structure of Liberty, uh, I talk about the need for the rule of law. Yeah. Um, as a way, because rights are very abstract and they won't decide, they won't decide anything but the more simple, the simplest concrete cases, uh, of which there are many, but at, at the difficult margins, you need some rule of law when there could be more than one rule of law and a common law system, I then go on to explain, in which you decide case by case based on the circumstances of that case, and then you start generalizing from the particulars of individual decisions is one way, in fact, it's the preferable way of discovering a workable rule of law. But then I say, theorists can still stand outside that system and say, that system is somewhat evolved in a bad direction and it ought to be corrected. And I call that rational criticism. And I think I've, I had some name to talk about the people who do that, which mainly, you know, legal scholars, for example. As a contract scholar, I could look at legal decisions in contract law. I say, well, you know, this doctrine has some problems here. Uh, but first, what the, it's the common law system that spontaneously generates the data that we then criticize. We don't invent it as theorists. I think John is saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. This will be the last question. You, uh, you don't like the word uh, social justice, but in the, in the libertarian world, can you establish norms of what you want your society to be? For example, we don't want starving children in our, in our society. Uh, a simple example. All right, that's a that's a floor. That's a norm. That's a form of social justice. Uh, it's not. It's only a form of social justice, depending on what you do with that norm. Oh, okay. Well, in the libertarian world, do we establish norms in our society that we don't want to drop below for whatever reason? And I use a simple one: starving children. You can ratchet up to different degrees, uh, but but do we have those norms? Well, first of all, as I said, um, uh, and I will reiterate, and everybody here already knows, we, have, we believe in justice, uh, not social justice. I just distinguish between justice and social justice. We believe in justice. Justice is defined by the individual rights of each one of us, and, that, and they can be enforced. And we were, we'll, we're prepared to defend our rights by force if necessary. Yeah, but, but, but what happened? And, and so those are what are called, those are what classical liberal theorists call perfect rights because they are in, legally enforceable. They also acknowledge the possibility of what they called imperfect. You know, you ever heard the expression, I have a perfect right to that? Mm -hmm. That actually is sort of, comes down from the notion that I have an enforceable claim. 
They also recognized the notion of imperfect rights and imperfect moral duties. And those were moral claims and moral duties on other people. They were genuinely moral claims and moral duties on other, that moral claims on other people to do things for you. Um, but they were not necessarily legally enforceable. They were imperfect insofar as there was no remedy if, if you were to fail to do that. So if you see somebody drowning, you might have a imperfect moral duty to rescue them if you're capable of it under the circumstances you can swim well enough and you know how to do it and you're not going to endanger yourself and the people that are around you. I mean, there's a lot of ifs and contingencies involved, but you then might have a moral duty to help that person. It just would not necessarily be a legally enforceable one. Well, let's take my example. Are we, are we going to have a, a tolerate or a, a, a make acceptable to have a redistribution of income to, to ensure that there's no starving children in our society? I mean, take, it, take it out of the moral thing. It, <clears throat> there's a situation of starving children. The only way you remedy it is you're going to redistribute income to some extent to provide the children aren't starving. Is, is that going to be permissible? You know, it, it, look, I don't think there's an automatic answer to that question, right? And so uh, I, what I was talking about was a view. That, uh, what I'm critiquing is the view that there is a distribution of pattern for everyone. There may be situations in which you could have a system. In fact, we currently have a system in which that exists, and that might be perfectly justified. There may be, in certain circumstances, a justification for something like that. But whatever that is, it's going to be an exception. It's going to be an exception. And if it isn't held to be an exception, it's going to overwhelm the system that makes the prosperity possible that would allow starving children to be taken care of. I just want to establish we can have exceptions uh, th that... Uh, well, let me, can I just say one word about exceptions? There... I think it's... Look, one of the things that people don't realize, because unless you become a lawyer and you, and, or you become a law professor and you teach law, built into the rules of law that define our rights are all kinds of exceptions. We have all kinds of exceptions. You are free to enter into a contract. You are free to enter into a contract, but there are exceptions. There are exceptions for infancy. There are exceptions for incapacitation. There are exceptions for intoxication. There are exceptions for duress and um, fraud and or other sorts of defenses to contract. Built into pretty much every body of common law, there are exceptions. The question is, are those exceptions exceptional? And what ultimately happens is there's always an advocacy that the exceptions should be made the norm or the exceptions should be made the rule. But built, we, we, built into our actual implementation of rights in this common law way that we talked about before are all kinds of exceptions. And, and this could be one of them. Sure. But that's, and I think this is worth emphasizing because I don't think people who are just dealing with rights in the abstract realize that in the real legal world of doing actual libertarian law, so to speak, there are exceptions galore, and that's what makes it more difficult to be a law student because it's hard to know, well, is this an exception or not? But every code, every common law body of knowledge that we libertarians would accept as being fully okay have exceptions built into them. They just have to be cabined as, exce as, as exceptions and not allowed to swallow the rule. Okay, thanks very much. Have, enjoy the rest of your time.